It is good to see everyone. It's good to see you out. The rains have begun, have they not? Did they have they uh, started raining in Seattle, or did you guys start earlier? A little bit later. Okay. There's some people for whom that I saw a study this week that there's always a study for whatever position, but I saw a study that said too much sunlight can make people depressed. So there's people that have been suffering who are now doing much better since the grayness is coming. Um, there are a number of people traveling, people, families that have uh, sick children or sick parents, and uh, let's just remember to uphold each other in prayer. It's really good to see um, some new faces here and look forward to getting to meet, meet you. Um, members of Grace and Truth, if you see somebody you don't know, please um, tell them that you forgot what they, who they are or introduce yourself. It, for me, some people, I've met them, and I'm like, old age is catching up, and I just... Uh, Hello, new friend. Good to see you again. Um, thank you also for um, complying with our tape of authority over here. Um, it helps singing, and it helps our church body to be sitting a little closer, not spread out. Um, if, if, if God sends more folks here and we have to break through the tape, we shall do so gladly. But um, we're going to try to sit in these two sections for, for a while. I think you'll, if you don't feel like you're singing in a barn, you may, uh, it just, it, it helps the, um, the singing. It helps for me when we're, when the other guys, when we're speaking to kind of be able to see you. So thank you. That That's for us up here on the platform and for us who preach. It's just a little more comfortable not to have a really broad uh, sort of seating arrangement. I do have a book to give away. So I'm, I'm going to try to be like Josh, who is the king of giving away books. But I have a book here that was helpful to me. Um, and I believe it may be, um, Helpful after this message. Hopefully at the conclusion of this message, it'll dovetail nicely into this book. This is a book by John Piper called What Jesus Demands from the World. What Jesus Demands from the World. And it's a number of chapters. I have not read the entire book because there are 50 demands um, from from the scriptures, 50 demands. They're, they're set up so they could be read easily in, in devotional form, uh, little little chapters from what Jesus taught, what Jesus did on the earth. And um, with the authority vested in him um, as God, what he's able to demand uh, from the earth. So this is for whoever would like to raise their hand and gussy. <laughs> and also today, um, we are going to be uh, in the scriptures, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, in the Gospels, and the scriptures are not all going to be on, on, on the overhead because uh, we're going to be looking back through the Sermon on the Mount. So I think today especially, I'd like you to have a Bible uh, with you. If you don't have one, we have a number of Bibles that we can loan in the back. So if you don't have one, no shame at all. Steve Kim will be happy to give you a Bible so you'll be able to follow along. We'll be flipping through like Matthew 5 through 7, jumping over to Mark a little bit. So if you don't have a Bible, could you uh, raise your hand? Okay, awesome. Thank you, Steve, for being ready. Thank you all for having Bibles. So approximately nine months ago, almost to the day, uh, January 15th, we started our study together on the Sermon on the Mount. Josh brought that first message, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And now here we are on October the 14th. Is that correct? Yeah, October the 14th on our final verses in this study. This has been a very rewarding, edifying, enlightening, and I hope challenging 
uh, study for all of us. And we also pray and hope that it's been transformative study for all of us. I'll confess that before this study, I had read the Sermon on the Mount, but I had not done a systematic study to see how all the pieces fit together and what Jesus, why he taught things and why he said things and what builds upon things. So it's been a real blessing to see and study the Sermon on the Mount. But as we come to the end of the text and the overall sermon, we're faced with a very important response to the Sermon on the Mount that we can see in the crowds that had gathered. And it's a very curious thing that's described for us. The summary statement in Matthew 7, 28 and 29 is surprising in a way as it's a commentary as to the immediate response of the disciples and also the crowds around them. It's almost like when, when I read these verses, and perhaps you, is at the end of this discourse of all these kingdom living topics, I'm like, this, this is the response that was noted by the narrative? But I will put forth now in my introduction the key point of my conclusion. So I hope we come back around to this, which is to say that this too, this too should be our response as hearers of the Sermon on the Mount here in 2012. So today, I hope you'll study together with me as we look at this text and the powerful idea behind this response of the listener so long ago. So if you'll turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would speak through your word. We thank you for the journey that this church body has been on through the Sermon on the Mount. We pray that the inroads that you've been able to make in our lives, in our hearts, and our thinking will be strengthened. That our walk as disciples would please you. We, we pray that today we would submit ourselves again as we are faced with the authority of your Son. We, we pray that it would be not only an intellectual understanding, but again, to use that word, a transformative apprehension of truth as laid out in your word. Just pray that you would bless. I pray that... Um, uh, my words would seek to convey truth from Scripture, that I would just be the vessel through which your words come forth. We pray that you'll be uh, glorified in our study and in our response today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Authority. Authority is a very interesting word. There are People in society who get labeled sometimes, perhaps unfairly, as having a problem with authority. I don't, I don't, won't ask you to raise your hands, but perhaps you were a child who has said, this child has a problem with authority. Um, many of us homeschool, we don't, we label our kids with other things, like, well, we just label our kids other ways. But, you know, problem with authority is one of those classic uh, educational system labels that, gets put on people. It's not, not usually fair, but have you also encountered people in your life, maybe not so favorite people in your life, who seem to always be the person in the situation who has a, a faux or fake or assumed authority, like 
if you're on a sports team, there's always a guy who's like, come on, guys, we should do layups now. And he's not the captain. He's not the coach. And you're like, why are you telling me what to do? You don't have authority to do this. Um, somebody at work who wants to be a manager but isn't yet. It's so much fun to work with that person, isn't it? There's an assumed authority. Perhaps you've heard your kids say to one another, um, and hopefully not to you as a parent, but perhaps you heard your kids say, you're not the boss of me. Uh, you can't tell me what to do. Um, that is a, a interaction related to authority. Authority implies many things. Perhaps it implies uh, that one person is dominant over the other, superior over the other. Authority gets misused. Authority gets mistakenly assigned to other people. Some people, authority artificially inflates their ego. If they get a title, all of a sudden they're treating people very differently and losing friends. Authority is relative, as it typically requires someone else to recognize that authority and respond to that authority. As one comedian said, I have as much authority as the Pope. I just don't have as many people who believe it. If we engage in discussions or arguments where we may be on opposing sides, we can frequently note the exact point when the deterioration of that conversation takes place, when one person pulls rank, when one person says, no, I'm right because I outrank you or I'm, I'm, I'm more important than you. Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci said, anyone who conducts an argument by appealing to authority is not using his intelligence. He is just using his memory. But authority can also mean that what is being said by the person, by the figure of authority, should be carefully considered and even accepted as truth. Sometimes we might ask a person and ask it in a, uh, a benevolent way. We're really trying to learn. We said, why should I listen to you? That's another way of saying, by what authority do you say these things? What qualifies you to say that? Because I want to believe you. I want to understand what you're saying. I want to accept it, but I need to know your credentials. In his case for Christianity, C.S. Lewis said, don't be scared by the word authority. Believing things on authority only means believing them because you've been told them by someone you think is trustworthy. Ninety-nine percent of the things you believe are believed because of authority. I believe there is such a place as New York City. I haven't seen it myself. I could not prove by abstract reasoning that there must be such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. The ordinary man believes in the solar system, atoms, the circulation of the blood on authority because the scientists say so. Every historical statement in the world is believed on authority. None of us have seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Spanish Armada. None of us could prove them by pure logic as you prove a thing in mathematics. We believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings for us that tell us about them, in fact, on authority. So authority has many meanings, and I hope that today, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we look at this verse that talks about the authority of Christ, we'll see that the, the way the crowd responded is noteworthy. This is not just a throwaway verse, uh, Matthew wondering how to end the Sermon on the Mount. The crowd responded in this way, and the focus of this narrative takes us to Jesus the person, not necessarily the words that he said, these three chapters, this voluminous amount of material that he speaks on, on the life of a disciple, life in the kingdom. 
The focus of the narrative comes to these last verses, and it focuses on the person of Christ. And today, we also wish to focus our attention on the same person. So my first point is the authority of the teacher or the authority of his words. If I were to issue the outline now, I'd say the authority of his words. So remember that the audience for the Sermon on the Mount were mostly disciples. These were people who had already, uh, were already following after Christ. There were, in the venue that we assume this was spoken in, on a hill, there were other people listening besides disciples. And Jesus was teaching these listeners about life in the kingdom. Now, you know, there are, as we've gone through, there are many things in the Sermon on the Mount that many people today, unbelievers, non-Christians, of all religions, can read and, and agree with most of these things as good teachings or good ideals. But we need to remember, these are not just sayings that were put together as an idealistic construct of some sort of utopian society. The teacher of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ, had larger goals in telling his disciples how they should live, and even more, calling them to live in this way. So the crowds responded with this key word, this not-so-common word today, astonishment. They were astonished. They were struck with amazement. They were exceedingly amazed at his teaching. And verse 29 answers the question, why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Sometimes you might hear those of us who have the privilege of preaching here at Grace and Truth, Sometimes we pray in public. We'll say, God, help me, the speaker, to get out of the way of the message. Let your message shine through. This is because we believe that the focus should always be on the preaching of God's word, not on the preacher himself. Uh, We believe this is one of the benefits that, that God's blessed us with of our team approach to preaching. The content of our preaching is more important than the person who's delivering it because the content of our preaching should be the very word of God. That's the only reason that any of us have any authority when we speak. Our authority as elders of Grace and Truth Bible Church should only be upheld as we are teaching and following and leading in line with God's word. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, this is odd. This is a greater recognition of the teacher rather than the words, rather than his teachings. The person of Jesus is notable here rather than the sermon. Of course, I think that practically speaking, After hearing these teachings, these three chapters, it'd be very difficult, even for his disciples who walked with him, to hear the deep and broad content of the Sermon on the Mount and to grasp all of it fully. No doubt there's a lifelong journey of understanding these truths, of implementing them, of having the Spirit work in our lives to shape us as disciples in the kingdom. But we see here that Jesus... Jesus, right off the bat, assumed the right to teach absolute truth. The truth in the Sermon on the Mount is universal. It was not, it cannot be discarded as, oh, that just applied to that time. That just applied to Jews in Palestine. The kingdom that Jesus was establishing transcended location. It transcended time. He spoke of his kingdom with utter and complete confidence. And the contrast is very stark For the listeners then, and I'd say for us now, the listeners then noted the difference between the scribes and Jesus. The difference between the scribes and Jesus. Now, who were the scribes? Keep in mind, there was no Internet or printing press. Things were passed down 
by copying, by, by people writing them down. The scribes were men who learned the Mosaic law by rote, by memorizing it, by devoting their lives to memorizing this, to, to upholding the traditions of what had been given to them and given to their predecessors and so on for generations. Their self-proclaimed duty was to be faithful to their tradition. They spoke with authority based only on the precedents that they could refer to. If they could quote famous rabbis or past scribes, it's like that authority from the famous guy in the past passed down to them. And so their, their authority was a handed-down, static, copied authority. But compare these scribes to this new teacher, this Jesus who came to speak to these disciples. He spoke from his own words, his own person, with his own authority. He swept away traditions with his words and his actions. Now, remember, Jesus did not sweep away or come to destroy the Mosaic law. He came to fulfill that law. But he did come to set right and abolish the corruptions of the teaching of Moses' law. Jesus was not merely a commentator with opinions about the law. His authority was evident in his teaching, and this intrinsic authority enabled him to speak to the souls of the listeners. We also can see a contrast between Jesus, the teacher here, and the prophets who had come before him. Now, it had been 400 years, 400 years between the Testaments, 400 years since prophets had spoken to the Jewish people. But the prophetic writings continued, and no doubt people knew the, that the prophets opened their sayings by this phrase, Thus saith the Lord. Thus says the Lord. And then the prophets would tell the people what God had told them. That was the establishment of the prophets' authority. They said, I'm speaking for God, and people should listen to the prophets because they were speaking for God. But in contrast, in contrast with that, thus says the Lord, what does Jesus say so many times here in the Sermon on the Mount? What does Jesus say? Jesus boldly says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Remember these verses in chapter 6, the middle chapter of the Sermon on the Mount? And Jesus says either, but I say unto you, or just the plain old, I say to you 12 times in the Sermon on the Mount. There is a difference between Jesus and the prophets. If we look back very quickly, just kind of skimming and get your Bibles out to Matthew chapter 5, if we look back at some of the verses in the Sermon on the Mount, we can see different aspects of his authority expressed in his words and in his teaching. There is implicit authority laced throughout this sermon. And maybe we can start to see why the people were astonished. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Let's just look there at the end of the Beatitudes. When Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus is saying that discipleship and following him are worth suffering for. That he is a person that is worth following despite the suffering. That suffering would be a blessing. Hearken back to the prophets of old who were told they, they were persecuted for bringing the word, of, uh, the word of the Lord to the people. Sometimes when a king did not like what a prophet said, I mean, the, the actual, you know, shoot the messenger uh, expression is an age-old expression. That prophet would be punished for just saying what God had told him to tell um, the king or the people. But like those prophets who were punished for conveying the word of God, 
Jesus says that following him will also bring justifiable suffering and blessing. So there's an authority here that Jesus is establishing regarding suffering. Keep on going to Matthew 5, 21 through 48. This is where we see over and over the opening uh, phrase, you have heard it said, followed by, but I say to you. Jesus is reiterating over and over in this section of the passage that he brings a true understanding of the law, which they have heard taught and twisted and corrupted for generations by the scribes. You have heard it said, but this is the real truth. This is the real meaning of the Mosaic law. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6 and 14 through 18, this is where Jesus talks about practicing our righteousness, about praying, about um, giving to the needy. And Jesus portrays himself as a true discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart of man. He points disciples to God for their reward. Practice your righteousness, but don't do it for other people to see. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, Jesus has the authority to say, pray like this. Don't pray like the Gentiles. Pray then like this. What authority does it take to to lead disciples and say, this is how you should pray? There's an implicit assumption of authority in Jesus' words. In Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus is the righteous judge who exemplifies to disciples the need for discernment and mercy as they judge. In Matthew 7, verse 13, and we'll read these, 13 through 14, and then we'll jump down to 21. Matthew 7, 13, if you'll turn there. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, this is Jesus speaking, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In this last passage, we see astounding authority. As Jesus is the final judge, Jesus is the final judge who will have the full authority to say, I never knew you. Jesus is teaching like no one else these people have ever heard or even heard of. And perhaps John Stott summarizes the authority of Christ, the teacher, best when he compares Christ to other religious figures. Stott says, those other figures, they are self-effacing. He is self-advancing. They point away from themselves and say, that is the truth as far as I can perceive it. Follow that. Jesus says, I am the truth. Follow me. This is the authority of his words. This is the authority of his teaching. Now let's look at the authority of his works. The authority of his works. It's interesting to note how Matthew positions this this, uh, Sermon on the Mount in the narrative of his book. In Matthew chapter 4, the prior chapter, if you'll turn to verse 12, Matthew 4, 12, prior to the opening of the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus begins his ministry and he's preaching, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He then calls his disciples, and if we go down to Matthew 4.23, Matthew 4.23, we see what Jesus was doing before the Sermon on the Mount was delivered. Matthew 4.23, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those opposed, oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The works of Christ preceded this concentrated presentation of the words of Christ. The works of Christ preceded the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount. And if we look in the chapters that follow, in chapter 8 and 9, we see Christ's works continue. Many times in the Gospels, we see this intersection of Christ's miracles, of his works, and Christ's authority. The people marvel at his authority even as he heals. In Matthew 8, we see he has the power to heal the centurion's daughter, even without the daughter being there. The centurion had so much faith and said, I know that you can say, be healed, and my daughter will be healed. In Mark chapter 2 and verse 10, the story of the paralytic who is lowered from the roof by his friends. And when Jesus is healing him, he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Those that saw and heard that miracle responded in the next verse, in verse 11 of Mark 2. They responded with amazement, astonishment, and wonder, just like we see them responding to the teaching here. In Mark chapters 1, 3, and 6, we see Christ's authority exemplified in his power over unclean spirits. In one instance, in Mark chapter 1, 27, the scripture says, And they were all amazed, so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. In the Gospels, over and over, we see these intertwined themes of Christ's words in his teaching, Christ's works in his miracles, his apparent and evident and obvious authority that transcended anything else that the people had seen. And the people respond with amazement and astonishment. These miracles validate and confirm the authority of Christ. The, his miracles reinforce the inherent strength and authority in his teaching, and his miracles demand a hearing for the teaching of the miracle worker. The greatest miracle that Christ did was his resurrection. Christ's resurrection validates his authority to the ultimate standard, to the ultimate level, demonstrating his authority over that most oppressive, and fearsome force that mankind deals with, that of death. Christ conquered death in his resurrection. Christ's authority received the divine stamp of approval when God raised him from the dead. Our belief in the resurrection, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, your belief in the resurrection cannot be merely whatever. It can't just be an intellectual Okay, someone chose to rise from the dead. 
this is the only person in history who raised himself from the dead. This is the only person in history who conquered death. This must be apprehended as truth. This must be dealt with. This is not something that you can just intellectually grasp. You have to boldly believe in this person. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? As disciples of Christ, we need not fear death. He whom we follow has conquered death. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, in the Great Commission, Jesus states, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. He has authority over all things. Jesus' words advance his authority. Jesus' works validate his authority. But what allowed Jesus to speak with such authority in this sermon? What was the foundational truth that allowed him to speak with such authority? We will settle here on the authority of his person. I want us to consider four aspects of Jesus' person that are highlighted in the Sermon on the Mount. Four aspects of Jesus' person that are highlighted in the Sermon on the Mount. His authority as Christ, his authority as God, his authority as Savior, and his authority as Lord. His authority as Christ, as God, as Savior, and as Lord. So first of all, his authority as the Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount and in Jesus' other teaching, he refers to having come to earth for a purpose. He says he was sent to earth. He says, I have come in order to do this. In particular, in verse uh, Matthew 5:17, Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Instead, he says, I have come to fulfill them. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus read from Isaiah. This is at the beginning of his ministry, after the death of John the Baptist. And Jesus read this very bold statement from Isaiah and said that he had been sent to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set free those who had been oppressed. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. How bold an opening of a ministry is that? To say today the scripture has been fulfilled. But Jesus came with a mission. Jesus came to earth with a purpose. All prophecies. When Jesus says that he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, he's saying all prophecies converge on this Jesus, the Christ. He was not merely a prophet. He was not merely the greatest of prophets. He was not merely a knowledgeable scribe or even the greatest, the most knowledgeable of scribes of the Mosaic law, but he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of all prophecies. The expectant time of waiting was now over and the time for fulfillment had come. Jesus opened his earthly ministry in Mark 1:15, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In Jesus' person is his inherent authority as the Christ, the fulfillment of prophecy. Secondly, we can see his authority as God in the Sermon on the Mount. There are three examples I want to point out to you where we can see that Jesus speaks. And as he's speaking, uh, he speaks in such a way that, that assumes that he is deity and that he is God in the flesh. 
Now, maybe for all of us, when, as we've been studying through these months and going through the Sermon on the Mount, I think most of us, even the preaching team, have been focusing on like the content, the words, what's being said. But I want just three points that are, were very helpful to me in seeing, wow, as Jesus was saying that, he was assuming that he is God, and therefore he can say that. And so let me just kind of take us back to however months it was that, um, in Matthew 5.11, first of all, that call to suffering. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you. And Jesus calls disciples to suffer willingly for following him, just like the prophets in the Old Testament suffered for their service to God. This analogous call, the similar call, and the worth-it-all object of faith for the prophets is the same as it for the hearers of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is equating himself with God, appropriately so, saying, it is worth suffering for me. Keep on going down in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. Luke 6 and 46. Hopefully you guys aren't getting fatigued. We're just flipping around a page or two. In Luke's rendition of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, I'm sorry, this is a book or two. Uh, in Luke's rendition, Luke 6, 46. Jesus asked the question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? In Matthew 7:21, which is the passage we're more familiar with, in that same context, Jesus words it, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Maybe I messed it up when I told you guys, but looking at Luke 6, he's saying, um, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I tell you? In Matthew 7, he's saying, why do you say Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things my Father tells you? There's an equation here. There's an equality. There's an assumption that Jesus is saying, I and my Father are one. Obeying Jesus and doing the will of the Father are equated as conditions for discipleship and true faith in God. Again, Jesus is speaking to the meaning of true discipleship with the divine assumption that Jesus is one with the Father and is God. This last remembrance, reminder that I want to point out in Matthew 7, where Jesus equates himself with God, fittingly so, is a very chilling and simple assumption. The verses I read earlier that end with, Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many verses in Scripture call God the righteous judge, but Jesus simply states that it will be his responsibility. Jesus says, I will be the one to say, I never knew you. Now we turn to his authority as Savior. His authority as Savior. Jesus also clearly states his authority as Savior in the portion of the Sermon on the Mount um, that I spoke on a few weeks ago that speaks of the two ways. One way is currently easy, and one way is difficult. The easy way is broad and easy to travel but leads to destruction, but the difficult path leads to life everlasting. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the door of the sheepfold. Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the path of salvation. I am the only way to salvation. There is no other way. Uh, we heard Josh speak last week that Jesus is the foundation, the rock on which a house, our life, must be built upon firmly. 
Jesus is not only the Savior in name, nominally. Jesus accomplished his mission, that which he was sent here to do, by humbling himself according to divine plan. Philippians 2, 7 through 8 may be familiar, but Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The call to the disciples in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, the call to the non-Christians who are surrounding them on the hillside, the call to the disciples here in this room and to non-Christians who may be hearing me today, that call is to embrace this one who is Savior and Lord over all and sovereign over all things. This Jesus has the authority as Savior to give eternal life. As Jesus prayed himself in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 1 through 2, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This Savior has the authority to give eternal life. And Jesus has the authority as Savior. And then finally, we come to the crux of the message, the crux of the Sermon on the Mount, the culmination of this call to discipleship, his authority as Lord, his authority as Lord. This is the foundational truth of the establishment of the kingdom that Jesus has been describing. It's important for us to take a moment to maybe step back and think and consider the big picture of Christ's identity as Lord. I ask you to do this because I've had to do it too. We frequently say our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We frequently say Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saying those fast not because I'm nervous, but because we say them quickly. We say them tritely. We say them in a way that we would just say like Mr. Tim. Or we'd say sir to somebody or ma'am if you're from the south. You know, just different titles. That kind of lose their meaning. The word for for Lord, kurios, means can be translated as owner, master, sovereign, king. I would ask you to join me in considering whether we use this word too tritely, as if it were a mere descriptor or maybe an honorific that we have lost its meaning and we're just using it because we're used to putting those words together our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lord's table. How often do we say Lord without thinking of what that means? So today, just spend a few minutes with me and let's focus on this. The title Lord and the inherent authority in that aspect of Christ's authority is of great importance. How often do we live, how many of us are living in such a way that belies or runs inconsistent with what we call Jesus? Do we live for ourselves, pursuing our own agendas, while at the same time calling him Lord and Master, but knowing that we do not answer to him practically? We do nothing that he calls us to do. We are pursuing our own rules. We are pursuing our own goals. Or do we live in a way that is pleasing to our Master and Sovereign? Do we live in a way that advances his kingdom? Do we live in a way that we want to get to know our loving master more closely? 
to commune with him. There is kind of a side teaching that I want to consider here. I don't, I don't know everyone's background, but there is a false teaching regarding Christ's lordship, which is dangerous in that it contains partial truth, but not obvious falsehood. And I want to mention there's a false gospel presentation. And hear me on this. There's a false gospel presentation that says one can come to God and accept Jesus as Savior, but that in a separate transaction or decision farther down the line, that then they can recognize him as Lord. It may happen very close to the time of accepting him as Savior. Um, this teaching says that if there's amount of time between Savior and Lord, it's a miserable time for the Christian, but that the, Christian, that the person is saved. This, I want to humbly say, is false teaching. We must be careful. We must be crystal clear in our presentation of the gospel. We cannot water down the gospel message to make it more palatable. And do you see how this teaching is more palatable to us? It is, it is easier to tell somebody, do whatever you're doing. Just accept Jesus as Savior. Intellectually understand that he is your only path to heaven. But you don't, there's nothing else required of you. Now, we don't want to make salvation a... It, it is a simple thing but it's also a lifetime of living and understanding and marveling at the goodness of God in giving us such a way of salvation. But we cannot water it down to make it more palatable. We cannot say there's cheap grace. That This is cheap grace you've heard me mention before. This is grace that is given and forgiveness that is granted when there is no repentance, when there is no turning away from sin, when, there, when a false gospel of salvation is a a gospel that calls for mere intellectual acceptance, that Jesus is the path for salvation, but it omits the turning away from sin and the pursuit of holiness. If we try to shape the gospel in a way that makes salvation just a buy-in or an opt-in decision. Right now at work, we're going through, um, what's it called? Open enrollment, health insurance, okay? So there's web forms to fill out, and you're like, just check a box, and they'll take more money out of your paycheck, if, but you'll get something for that eventually, or the people that survive you will. The, uh, we don't want to make the gospel just an opt-in or a buy-in uh, decision. We cannot do this in the name of relevance. We cannot do this in the name of contextualization. This is a false gospel. Consider one of Christ's own encounters with evangelizing. When Christ met with the, the rich young ruler, this was a man that came to him and Jesus in Luke 18, and Jesus listened to his list of all the good and the very valid and the very needful things that a disciple should do. And the young man asked him, like, what, what more do I need to do? And Jesus said, sell all that you have. Jesus says this with authority. Sell all that you have. Come and follow me. There is an important required part of salvation that recognizes that, that requires a recognition of and actions that attest to Christ's lordship. Jesus, as Lord, had the authority to tell that young man to do that, to follow him. Because he, that's what it would take for that young man to recognize and attest to Jesus being Lord in his life. And the young man went away sorrowful. He was not willing to do that. 
Consider again verse 721, Matthew 721. I want to read it again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Please hear me. There are eternal implications for not recognizing the Lordship of Christ and living in such a way that attests to his authority as Lord. Jesus says here in this passage, in these verses that I just read, there will be people who call him Lord. There will be people who verbally attest to him being Lord. They call him Lord his name, who have acted in ways and done deeds motivated by that intellectual understanding that Jesus is Lord. But yet these people do not know him. There is a danger of mere verbal assent, just agreeing. Don't you think the demons say Jesus is Lord? Don't you think there are unbelievers who's like, yeah, Jesus is the Savior? But if there's not a heartfelt conversion, there is not an acceptance of his authority as Lord. If this troubles you deeply, you know, talk to me afterwards. But also the message, I guess it would be four or five weeks ago that Chad Asire preached on uh, this part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's worth listening to again. Our goal is not to make all Christians freak out and like, oh, no, I don't want to be that person that calls him Lord and calls him Savior. And then I get up there and I'm, I'm wondering, oh, no, I actually never knew him. I'll speak to this in, a, in, a, in just a minute, but our goal is not to give you unrest, but to give you hope and trust in this person of ultimate authority. So this is the culmination of the Sermon on the Mount, that the call to life in the kingdom is a valid call, which is coming from one with the authority to make that call in our lives. So what does this mean in conclusion? What does this mean? What is the significance of him having authority? We've looked at the authority of Jesus teaching his words. We've seen how his works, his miracles validate his authority. And we looked at just a few of the ways that in the Sermon on the Mount we can see uh, it teaches us about the authority of his person. It would be very easy for us to gather in the foyer and the commons afterwards and just say, yes, we agree with that. Yes, we see that in the text. Yes, it was very amazing, and I am almost astonished that Jesus spoke with such authority. Boo to the scribes of the past, and boo to the prophets of old. Jesus has real authority. All that is true, and we can all kind of agree on that, but what does this mean for us? It would be easy and simple and tidy for us to just respond to the intellectual truth that I hope I've been able to present to you today. But it was my hope and prayer today that we would look at this message and be thinking along with the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount, I am astonished by this man. His words speak to my soul. What is before you today is, I pray, a clear recounting of the authority of Jesus, the Christ, Lord and Savior. And with that knowledge, we must be faced with our 
response. How will we respond? And perhaps the best way for me to summarize is this basic question. Is Jesus Lord in your life? Is Jesus Lord in your life today? To the non-Christian who may be here, we welcome you. We love you. We are glad that you're here for whatever reason you came here. Uh, We want to get to know you better. And perhaps the answer is simple for you, though, to this question. You can say, no, he's not Lord. I do not answer to him. He is not my master. I don't recognize his authority. To you, Jesus issues a love-filled, gracious, merciful call to discipleship and repentance. True happiness and delight and life everlasting await the disciples who forsake all of their own authority to follow Jesus' true and complete authority. He calls to you today to come and follow him. We are praying for you. We prayed for you before the service. To the Christians here, the answer may be more difficult. Perhaps you have recognized Jesus as your Lord and Savior, as the only path, as the one to whom all authority has been given in heaven and earth. But yet you or I may be living our lives in a way that does not attest to that authority. Perhaps you live in a way that makes it clear that your Lord is something else. This is more difficult because we don't have like a board in our house where we like Lord Tim today or Jesus or something else. Perhaps your Lord is someone else. Perhaps you are living your life in a way that pleases, that, that's most important to you to please that person more than anything else. Perhaps it could be a thing. It could be your passions or your ambition. Perhaps it could be your career. Some people, if I remember back to my teens and 20s, I had an idea of what my career was going to be like. Other people may have an idea of what their family was going to be like. And, you know, there's plenty of movies and self-help books that talk about having a solitary vision and driving forward to that. And the great people in our world have been fixated on their ambition, on their Lord, I would say. But maybe for some of you, it's something good. Maybe your Lord is a future spouse. But for now, Jesus wants you to follow him. And he'll give you the good things that he wants you to have. For others, maybe when they were young, maybe when you were young, you, you wanted the family. The, uh, the previous generation talked about a white house with a picket fence, but now I'm living in Oregon, I don't know, maybe it's like acres of land and doing whatever you want or a small townhouse with a park nearby. Whatever your dream was, if you don't have that, are you unhappy? Are you enslaved to that idea of what life should have been? Perhaps you wanted that, but God calls you to a life of simplicity. I wanted a job and the wealth that came with it. And God's taking care of us, but I'm not as... I was supposed to be retired now, so let me just confess that. I was going to retire when I was 40 because 40 was such an old age. Um, those of you in your 20s, don't laugh at me because you're thinking that too. I was going to pursue that, but, but God called me to something different. 
And for those of you who are trying to pursue certain things, if that is your Lord, you're living a life that does not recognize and attest to the Lordship of Christ. I've just tried to come up with some ideas to help us think, because I think all of us, I know that the Bible says all of us have deceitful hearts. We need to face our deceitful hearts with the bright light of Scripture and ask ourselves if our actions, if our life goal, if our mission in life show that we have a life that's under subjection to the awesome authority of the Son of God, the King of the kingdom, or if we are serving ourselves. Please consider this privately. Please consider this as you think on these things throughout the week. I want to close today with something I read this week from Kevin DeYoung, a pastor in the Midwest. In Matthew 28, I read that Jesus said that all authority in heaven and earth belongs to him. And in summary, Kevin says it better than me, the implications of Jesus being my Lord. If he's Lord over all, it means Jesus is my Lord. That's what you're saying when you confess Jesus as Lord. You are saying that Jesus can call the shots for my life. Jesus can tell me how I should think about myself and about my career and about my marriage and about the world. Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, not me. I am not an autonomous creature. I live to serve this master. That's what you're saying when you confess Jesus as Lord. But let us be clear about one thing. Jesus is Christ. And Jesus is Lord, whether we think he is or not. Jesus is not asking for your vote. Jesus is not standing by just saying, will somebody please notice me and worship me and sing a song to me? Jesus does not depend on my response or my affirmation of his authority. Jesus is in heaven. Jesus is at God's right hand. He governs the church by his word and spirit. And no matter what any of us think or believe or decide, Jesus is now and forever will be Lord and Christ. Jesus is not begging you to be his Facebook friend or his Twitter follower. But to be sure, Jesus issues a gracious invitation. But it's not because he needs. It is because he loves. And like the crowd in Matthew 7, let our response to Christ's authority be astonishment, utter amazement, Not only because Jesus has true authority, but because this authority, this ultimate authority, this Jesus, would love us so much. As we turn now to the Lord's table, we, at Grace and Truth, observe this remembrance every three weeks. There are some multiple purposes for the table. Um, We can take this from the passages that describe the, the establishment of the Lord's table. I confess that Until working on this message, I never really focused on the fact that it's called the Lord's table. One of the purposes is to proclaim the gospel. We proclaim his death until he comes. Another purpose is to examine our lives. But today I would ask us, I mean, if those are the purposes that you need in your life, by all means, as we partake together as a church body, focus on that. But there is also the Uh, as long as you do this, do so in remembrance of me. This is what our Lord calls us to do, to remember 
Christ and what he has done for us. So focus on the person of Christ today, if you would, as we partake. Now here at Grace and Truth, we welcome those who are trusting solely in the work of Christ for their salvation and seeking to walk in obedience with him, whether you're a member here, whether you're visiting. But if you are a believer, a Christian, a follower of Christ, we welcome you to join us. In a moment, Josh, or even now Josh and the team can come and get set up. Um, Josh is going to play some uh, music to give us a time for reflection and prayer. And then uh, when Josh and the team begin singing, we'll be able to partake. Just come forward, take the uh, bread and the cup, and uh, maybe get get with a friend or family, pray together, um, and uh, uh, sing along and celebrate the Lord's table as a church body. So um, if the uh, servers would come up, I'll go ahead and pray, and we'll transition to this celebration. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would continue working in my life, and I pray that the words of this wonderful Sermon on the Mount would continue to resonate in our hearts and our lives in the weeks and months to come, even beyond, that this call to discipleship would, for many of us, Um, be a continuation or a beginning of a journey of seeking to advance your kingdom, seeking to become more like your son until you bring us to yourself that we would be faithful. I thank you for your son, for for the divine plan that you ordained that sent him here to die on the cross for the sins of mankind that would condemn us to eternal hell and punishment that your son hung on a cross and absorbed the wrath that we deserved, took the punishment that I deserved, and that you accepted that sacrifice, that you have exalted him now at your right hand, that he intercedes for us, and that when you look on us, you see his righteousness clothing us. I pray that this would never become trite again that we would joyfully and lovingly submit ourselves to our Lord and Master, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that the delight in His service and the blessings that come would transcend our wildest dreams and that we would truly understand the joy that comes from serving You. Thank you for this time of gathering. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.